We are continuing with our series on the book of Luke, and if you were with us last week, you may remember that uh, we were introduced to Zechariah, that he had been uh, uh, selected by Sacred Lot to officiate in the temple and offer incense and, and prayer. And while he was there, an, an angel, uh, Gabriel the archangel, uh, suddenly appears to him and says, you know, Gabriel, uh, your prayers have been answered. And uh, he goes on to announce that he and his wife, uh, Elizabeth, will, will have a son. His name will be John. That he will be great. And uh, this is wonderful news uh, for Zechariah. But he's having a little difficulty believing that it could possibly be true because he was old and his wife was also really old and way past the time of childbearing. So he wasn't exactly sure that this really could happen or that it really would happen. And as a sign, the angel uh, struck Zechariah uh, mute. He was not able to speak, probably not able to hear either. And uh, all of this happened as a result of disappointment with God. And so uh, we are, are, are moving uh, from, from this point now where uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, have it, experienced something that should have washed all of that disappointment away. But nonetheless, we recognize that there are times, seasons that we go through where we may be disappointed with God. So the Lord uh, certainly speaks to us uh, through the, the occasions or the occasion leading up to, to the birth of John the Baptist. And now we join John, who's already grown up, skipped through his childhood. And if we go to uh, Matthew and um, Mark and, and even John, we'll find out more information about uh, John the Baptist. Uh, but since we're in the book of Luke, we're just going to stick with, with what Luke tells us. So, uh, I'd like to invite you to join me now as we read the account from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. You'll find this on page 858 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow with me. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate be, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconinus, and Licinius to uh, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up, or from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds ask him, well, What then shall we do? He answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what are we to do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Well, in the first verse, Luke mentions the prominent and famous political figures of the day. It's Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, and Herod, the king, and his brother Philip. And then in the next verse, he mentions the uh, prominent religious leaders of the day, Annas and Caiaphas. And then he mentions John. But John is not part of either the political establishment, nor is he part of the religious establishment. He is not here to advance the agendas of either one of these establishments. John is here to advance God's agenda. And Luke wants us to know that whatever the political and the religious establishments were doing, that the really important thing is what he tells us at the end of verse 2. That the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. This is the main event. This is, I mean, uh, the word of God coming to John is something we might skip over. And we might think that the mention of uh, all of these uh, heavy hitters and these power brokers is really where the attention should go. But Luke wants us to know that uh, you know, the, the Herods and the Pilots and the Annases and the Caiaphases are, are, are re really there just to serve the historical context for what is uh, about to happen. So what we uh, want to focus on is that the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. You know, sometimes when uh, we read scripture, uh, we're not sure exactly what uh, the, the historical timeline is, uh, but to the people who first read this, you know, it would have meant something to them. It, it would be sort of like uh, in, in the days when FDR was president, Winston Churchill was prime minister of England, and Joseph Stalin was uh, the dictator uh, of uh, Russia, uh, there was a baby born in Oklahoma, Mississippi. That's where my first two sons were born. <laughs> I had to pick some backwater town that no one's ever heard of in order for it to make sense, right? Um, Luke wants us to know that what God is doing through John is more important than what the political establishment is doing or even what the religious establishment uh, which was actually hijacked uh, by Annas and Caiaphas uh, followed along with that. But I, I want us to see this point before we go any further, that there is scarcely anything that is more vital than the public address of the Word of God. So what was it that John was preaching? If his message was all that important, it would be helpful for us to know what that message was, wouldn't it? Uh, so he's talking about a baptism of repentance. What is a baptism of repentance? Well, it was the statement that you realized that you needed to be 
cleanse. You needed to clean your life up and that you were putting your past behind you. Now, it's important for us to understand that in the context in which John is baptizing, uh, this is something new because baptism up until this time was only for Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. And so after uh, going through a, a period of time and of examination among the Jewish elders, if, if uh, they were going to be received into the Jewish community, uh, they would need to make a statement that they were putting their past behind them, that they realized that they needed to get their lives cleaned up. And so uh, as a, an expression of, of humility, of this great need, uh, they would be immersed into water similar to the fashion that you saw here. Uh, but up until this time, Jews were never baptized. That's because they were children of the covenant. Uh, there was no need for them to be baptized or to be initiated into the Jewish community. They were born into it. And so when they come to John to listen to what he has to say and to be baptized by him, you know what they're saying is that they are saying that we are really no more spiritually uh, higher up the ladder than Gentiles who have been unbelievers up to this point. Uh, we, we, we recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Uh, this is what they were doing. And something else that's important to note here, in, in those days, uh, the, the baptism of, of, of John, well, not the baptism of John, but, but the, the, the baptism that was administered to Gentiles was, was always self-administered. So you didn't have someone there uh, who would lower you into the water and help you uh, raise back up. Uh, you would just dunk yourself into the water in front of, of witnesses. But when John came along, John did the baptizing. Now this is important. This transition is e essential. We'll come back to it later on. But for now, uh, I want to plant this thought in your mind. From the point of John the Baptist forward, it is important to note that even as you were not administering baptism to yourself, uh, you're no longer going to be baptized uh, by your own hand. You will be baptized by the hand of another. And that points to the cleansing that is to come is not going to be by your own hand. You're not going to be cleaning yourself up. You're going to be entrusting that job to another. See, Jesus is the only one who can truly cleanse us of sin. Uh, the water is symbolic of washing, but it is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that our sins are taken away. And John's baptism points to all of that. It just acknowledges that uh, I, I need a fresh start. I, I need to get my life cleaned up. I, I need to get all of this done, but I, I cannot do it on my own. So it leads us to the next question. If, if this is a baptism of repentance, why do you need to repent? Well, John, or Luke rather, uh, quotes uh, from uh, Isaiah the prophet. And uh, he says, you know, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall, or every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. 
In those days, when a king would come and visit his people, he would send a forerunner, a messenger, who would go out into the towns and the villages and say that the king is going to be coming uh, around this time. Who knows exactly when, but uh, they have a, a general idea. So here's what you need to do. You, you need to get ready for his coming. You need to fix all those potholes in the road. <laughs> uh, you need to get rid of those wagon ruts. Uh, made by, or those, uh, you know, ruts made by the, the wheels of, of chariots and wagons and so forth. Uh, you need to clean the town up, get rid of all the litter, round up all the criminals and, and put them away. Uh, clean this place up so that when the king comes, he will not be angry and uh, bring some kind of harsh penalty upon you. And so John is sort of like one of those ancient forerunners who would come and say, the king is coming, get ready. And so this is what uh, John is doing. And uh, so the people need to repent because the, the king is, is coming. Uh, John's message was that uh, the, the things that need to be made right can be made right because the king who is coming is able to do things that no human can do. I mean, we cannot level the mountains and use what we have taken off the mountains and fill in the valleys, but God can do that. Uh, we are not able to uh, do all the other things that you know, Isaiah the prophet uh, you know, spoke of by uh, taking the rough places and making them level ways and, uh, and, and even bringing about salvation, but Jesus the King can. So... John essentially is saying through his ministry, the king is coming. I'm not him. In fact, I'm not even worthy to, to, to kneel down and uh, unlatch his sandal from his foot. Uh, but the king is coming. So get ready and get ready by repenting. Now, what does it mean to repent? Um, you know, there are two kinds of repentance. Uh, one is contrition, the other is attrition. Uh, contrition would be if you have a, a deep sorrow over your sin. You know, you've done something that you shouldn't have done and now you're sorry that you did it. You wished that you hadn't done it. Uh, you're all broken up over that. Uh, you might even beat yourself up over that, but you are in deep sorrow. And if you go to the example of David in the Old Testament when he had the affair with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet comes and you know, helps him understand what he did, then you know, David went into a state of deep contrition. He was all broken up over what he did. That is one form of repentance. But, but there's another form, and that is attrition. Uh, best way to explain it, I guess, is to give you this illustration. Uh, so suppose uh, a kid comes into the kitchen, and he looks around uh, to see if his mom or his dad is around, and he sees that nobody is there, and so he stealthily takes his hand and slithers it into the cookie jar to grab a cookie. And just about that time, his mother pops into the kitchen, and uh, just the presence, just her presence there was enough to, to scare the wits out of him. And he says, please, mom, please, mama, don't, don't spank me. I, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> so the, the, the repentance of 
uh, attrition would be you're sorry you got caught. You're sorry that you're going to have to experience consequences for what you did. You're not really sorry for what you did. You're just sorry you're going to have to pay for what you did. So this is the attitude that John perceives in people when they come to be baptized by him because he says, he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, this is amazing. It's amazing on, on several different levels. It's amazing, first of all, that there are people who are wanting to flee the wrath of God that is to come. We don't live in such a culture where we are afraid of the wrath of God. In fact, in the context of which, of, uh, which we experience Christianity, wrath is something that's really not even an attribute of God anymore because his love has overcome his wrath. and uh, There is no such thing. Uh, but these people realized that wrath was in, indeed something that would come upon them. And uh, there, there's something else uh, that's, uh, you know, amazing about this passage is you have all these people coming out here. I mean, they weren't coming to Jeru Jerusalem. They're not coming to the big city. Uh, they're going to the Judean wilderness. The Judean wilderness was, uh, you know, down below sea level. Uh, it was a desolate place. And John is out there and he's baptizing. Uh, and uh, people are coming out in the middle of nowhere to hear what he has to say. I find that amazing. And something else I find amazing is when they all come, I would expect that John might say something like this. It's so great to have all of you here. I think we have more here this afternoon than we had yesterday afternoon. Well, we are just so thrilled that you were here. And on your way out, if you'd be uh, gracious enough to fill out one of those comment cards, we'd like to uh, follow up with you later. Uh, I would expect John to say something like that, but you see what he says. It's on the screen there. You bunch of snakes, who warns you to flee the wrath that is to come? Vipers or snakes. Uh, where do we first get into, introduced to a snake? Yeah, it's in the Garden of Eden, right? The serpent comes up and beguiles Eve and uh, you know, tempts her to take the forbidden fruit. And uh, she listens to the snake. And so John, I think, is picking, picking up on this reference and saying, you guys are on the wrong team. The snake is not the mascot for God's team. Maybe an angel would be, you know, but, but, but not, not a snake. A snake is symbolic of Satan. So, I mean, I don't know how you get people to come listen to you speak when you talk to them like that. But... God, I mean, uh, John does. Uh, and it's good for us to realize who he's talking to. He's not talking to a bunch of Gentiles who don't know God who are coming because they're curious. He's talking to covenant people. He is talking to those who are Jews, who were born Jews, uh, grew up Jews, 
and were familiar with what his word had to say, familiar with all of the practices and the rituals and the, the, the feasts and the festivals and uh, such as that. Uh, they, they were God's people. And here they come and, uh, you know, John offends them. Uh, he, he insults them, calls them snakes. Uh, and why would he do that? Because they've turned away from God. Now, it's good for us to pause here just for a moment. You could have been born into a Christian family. You could have come to church all your life. Uh, you could have expressed uh, your knowledge of the Bible in a number of ways and attended not only worship services, but perhaps small group studies and Bible studies and such as that. And you could still be in need of repentance of some degree or another. And so John wants the people to realize that they've come to the right place. <laughs> uh, they uh, do need repentance. They may not realize it. He wants to help them realize it. And uh, you know, the next thing kind of helps us understand that. Uh, he says, you know, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He's saying, look, if your hearts are right with God, it's going to show up in your life. That's what he's saying. In the next verse, he says, yeah, and, and, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God's able to, uh, you know, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You know, if God could create a man out of the dust of the earth, as he did with Adam, he would have no trouble creating sons of Abraham from the, these stones that are there. So again, he is speaking to their sense of religious pride. You know, we were born into the right families. We were born into the, the, the right nation. Uh, so God is kind of obligated to be good to us because, you know, we got a covenant with him and he's got to be nice to us. Now, why are you calling us snakes and so forth? But, you know, John, you know what he's doing is he is exposing their hearts. And uh, here's the other amazing thing is their hearts were being made ready for, for God. Now, uh, you know, basically, uh, John is accusing them of doing just enough to keep God off their backs. In other words, they may have been thinking something along these lines. What do I have to do to satisfy God in order to keep him off my back? They figured maybe a religious ritual would do that. If you do the ritual, then you know, God will leave you alone. He won't pester you anymore. Um, you know, they're not the last generation to think that there might be something to this. You know, even today, uh, you see people doing all kinds of religious things uh, with the motive of keeping God at bay, keeping him off their backs. You know this, I, I don't know how this got started, but uh, we all know, don't we, that uh, if a, a vampire wants to attack you, how do you protect yourself from the vampire? You know, you show him the cross and the vampire, you know, is uh, you know, scared to death of the cross and he goes away and he leaves you alone. But you know, there are a lot of religious people who use the same tactic. They wear a cross on their neck or maybe on their earlobes uh, with hopes that, yeah, well, God will see that I'm a religious person 
and uh, he won't interfere in my life. He'll protect me, but he's not going to interfere. So whether it's uh, observing a ritual or wearing religious jewelry or, or, or here's one for you. If you make uh, a, a really generous contribution to the church, then God sees that and he appreciates that. And to show his gratitude, he leaves you alone. All right, now we're getting into stuff that John's really talking about. He's not talking about the need to observe some religious ritual. He's talking about the need for heart change. Uh, verse 9 he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, at my house, um, a few years ago, I uh, put some rocks around the flower bed and uh, decided that you know, some candy tuft, along with those stones, candy tuft is... Uh, a, it's kind of a, a, a border flower. It's in full bloom now. and has purple and white flowers on it. And so, um, you know, you set out several, spaced them apart, and you know, they're supposed to spread. And, and the amazing thing is that some of those areas, uh, they spread out all over everywhere. So I have to, you know, dig part of them up and transplant them, you know, someplace else. And, and there are other places where the flowers just flat out died. They got the same soil. They were right next to each other. They had the same amount of rain. <laughs> and when I watered, you know, they got the same amount of water. They had the same amount of everything. Some of them flourished and some of them died. Now, what do you do when your candy tuft dies? Well, you could, uh, you know, go to the hardware store and uh, get, get you a, a can of... Uh, green spray paint and you know, shake it up and come up and spray those brown plants with uh, you know green paint and uh, maybe get some plastic flowers or something and staple them onto the, uh, the, the the little plants that are there and from a distance maybe you know from far off uh, they might look like the real thing I mean it'd be better than nothing there wouldn't it <laughs> I mean that is one option uh, but there's another option that's the option I I took you know, just dig them up and uh, throw them away. Throw them away, and uh, you know, get some more, and and start over. So that's, uh, I, I guess, one one way to illustrate what uh, John is talking about. Let, let me take it uh, a, a little bit deeper, if I can, with uh, another illustration about uh, this desire for fruit that reflects repentance that John is talking about. Um, we have a neighbor who lives, uh, you know, where we live is kind of a circle. It looks more like the letter D, and we live on the straight edge of the D. That's immaterial, but uh, around uh, the, the circle where the, the curved part of the D is, uh, there, there's a guy who has uh, an old basset hound, and for a long time, you know, he'd take his basset hound uh, for a, a walk around the block. And, and the basset hound was, was really old. Uh, you know, he looked like he had arthritis. He walked with a limp. I don't know if it was due to arthritis or it had a broken leg or, or something. But somewhere uh, along the line, my, my neighbor uh, 
thought maybe his dog needed some help. He couldn't walk around the block by himself, so he, he got this little wagon. And so you see this guy walking around you know, with his cell phone uh, in one hand and the wagon uh, tongue in the other, taking his dog for a, a ride a, around the block because you know, the dog is uh, you know, just too tired and too old to, to do it by himself. Now, in observing the dog, uh, before I say anything about the dog, you know, Sunday school this morning, uh, we talked about dogmatics and uh, talked about theologies in cat agories, which I'll get to the cat in a little bit, and, but we also have snakes, so I mean, just warning you uh, that this is what you have to, to look forward to. But anyway, this dog, you look at him, you know, that dog doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink. Uh, he, he, he doesn't cuss, he doesn't go out with girl dogs who do. You know, he's, he's the very epitome of what some people think the Christian life is all about. If you don't do any of that stuff, then, I mean, you're, you're just the epitome of a fully devoted disciple of Christ. But a devout follower of Jesus is not someone who is like my neighbor's dog who doesn't do anything. You know, that may be the idea of sinlessness that some people have, but it's not what Jesus had in mind. Jesus is not looking for uh, the kind of behavior that you would see in an old dog who's running around in a wagon. Uh, the Lord is looking for changed hearts. The axe is laid to the root of the tree, John says. Now, this doesn't mean that it's as though the woodsman has gone to his shed and he has you know, taken the grindstone to that axe and uh, got it sharp and now he's ready to whack away at the tree. He's already been whacking at the tree and now he is down to where just one more good whack and the tree is going to come down. And so this is a sense of urgency uh, that John is wanting to communicate here. So there's a crisis. The axe is at the root of the tree. It's about to be cut down and thrown into the fire. You don't have much time. And uh, if you don't understand that repentance starts at the root, uh, then you, know, you would have no trouble stapling leaves to dead plants or plastic flowers to dead bushes and giving it the appearance of being alive. You know, no one's going to be fooled by flake flowers stapled to a dead plant. Now, God is looking for what repentance reflects. Life. Real life. Not, not, not artificial stuff. Not stuff that even uh, an, an old arthritic dog can do. He's looking for the kinds of things that make you alive. You know, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, that the Bible tells us. But when the Word of God comes to us, like it came to John or whoever it comes through, whether you read it directly yourself or you have someone uh, read it to you or speak it to you or proclaim it to you in, in some way, 
when the word gets into your heart, it produces life, real life. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that's what John is saying. There's one who is coming after me who is going to give you life like you've never had before. And so the crowds are intrigued. They wonder, well, what should we do? And John says, well, if you've got two tunics, uh, give one to someone who doesn't have one. And uh, to the tax collectors. I mean, tax collectors were there too. And so John tells them, um, don't overcharge. And in, in, in those days, you had like a franchise where, uh, you know, Rome told you you had to get X amount of uh, drachmas or whatever the currency exchange was. Uh, you, you had to get X uh, amount of currency. And uh, if you wanted to collect more than that, uh, you know, to increase your commission, you're, you're welcome to do that. And uh, just about everybody did. Uh, John is saying, you know, don't cheat people. And then uh, the, the, the next group of people, uh, there were soldiers. I mean, Roman soldiers are coming out here too. It, this is amazing. The, the, the message is not just for the Jews. It, it's for everybody, even tax collectors, even Roman soldiers who were considered to be the enforcers of all that was evil in the world. And so, you know, John tells them, you know, be content with your wages, which in, um, in other words means, you know, don't, don't go and shake people down and try to get extra from them just because you can, because you have a sword and a shield and a helmet. So repentance is not seen as doing some extraordinary deed, uh, but living your life in a transformed way. There was a missionary to Ethiopia who tells a story of a man who was really not a good man. Uh, he was a, a, a drunkard. He was lazy. He, he wouldn't work. Um, you know, we, we might call him a, a total loser. Uh, he was married, but he was in danger of losing his wife and children because he wouldn't provide for them. And then one day someone shared the gospel with him and it resonated. And he started to think, what, what can I do to get my family back? And so uh, he went out and he got a job. The only job he could get was, you know, taking a hoe and, uh, you know, hoeing weeds out of the garden. And uh, so we asked the question, what does repentance look like? Well, in this instance, it looked like hoeing. It's taking responsibility and... Uh, you know, doing what a transformed person would do. And so you know, uh, later on the man was able to actually win his family back. Okay. So we understand that you know, repentance doesn't have to be some flamboyant, overly emotional demonstration of sorrow. Um, the repentance that really means something is... Your heart's been changed. Your life has been changed. And the change is evident for all to see. All right, so here's what I want us to take away from, from this message. A genuine repentance stops trying to earn salvation and receives it 
as a gift. So this goes back to the way baptism was administered previously, where uh, you, whereas before Gentiles would baptize themselves, and now anyone who's going to be baptized will be baptized at the hand of another. It points to the reality that you cannot clean up your own life. You need someone else to clean that life up for you. And Jesus has done that. Genuine conversion comes from an internal heart change. That's the, the next thing we uh, want to take home with us. Um, and, and I should say here that as, uh, as wonderful a testimony, a, a public declaration of faith as baptism is, and we highly recommend it. If you haven't done that, we want to, want to talk to you. But just getting baptized apart from repentance is sort of like stapling plastic flowers to dead bushes. We're looking for reality, real heart change here. So salvation does not come to us through our own efforts, but from the efforts of another. God accepts you not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of Jesus' performance on your behalf. And Jesus has performed in our place. I want to close with an illustration, but uh, before I do, I need to go back. I mentioned cat, and uh, for all you cat lovers out there, who I am sure that uh, the only thing that will be on your mind was, he talked about a dog and said he's going to talk about a cat, and he never did talk about a cat. So uh, I didn't get the part about the cat in there where I intended to get it. So let me just give it to you, and I will try to work it together and make it fit somehow. You know, um, a lot of people are not looking for radical change in their lives. Uh, they are just looking for something warm and fuzzy to make life a little better. A lot of people aren't looking for total transformation when they come to Christ. They, they just want a little better life. They want to add Jesus on, you know, sort of like you might add a cat to your life. You know, when you add a cat to your life, you've got something warm and fuzzy to hold on your lap. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the cat will stay in its corner and, you know, not bother you. He'll leave you alone unless, you know, he really wants something. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the cat is there to provide uh, warm fuzzies for you. And a lot of people think of Jesus as a cat. He's somebody you go to to get warm fuzzies, but who will pretty much leave you alone. That's not the kind of God we serve. Let me tell you about the, the kind of God whom we, we do serve how he does for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. Now, I want to give you a hypothetical illustration. This is not something that actually happened to me, although there are elements in the stories that you are about to hear that have happened to me, but I've put them together in such a way that I hope will be uh, exaggerated and entertaining, but uh, illustrative nonetheless. One day I woke up bright and early before the alarm went off, felt wide awake, and decided to go into my den and look out the window. 
and uh, watch the, the, the sun come up while I read my Bible. And uh, uh, pretty soon it became apparent that you know, God was really uh, making some things clear to me in his word. And uh, this was much in, in the days when I was much younger. My kids wake up and they come in. Uh, hey, Dad, what are you doing? Well, I'm reading the scriptures. Well, where in the scriptures are you? So I tell them. And they said, could you explain the scriptures to us in such a way that uh, we could follow the, the, the Lord more perfectly the way that you do? And uh, well, of course, that's, you know, every Christian dad's dream. And so we have a Bible study right there. And it's time for breakfast before they have to get to their studies. And so it fits them a nice, nutritious breakfast. And I say, thank you so much for this wonderful, nutritious breakfast of uh, seaweed and uh, well, whatever else that is uh, you know, trendy. I, I guess I should have inserted here about John the Baptist you know, eating locust and wild honey. Maybe we should have had that for breakfast. Um, but uh, the, the day goes on. I, I'm on my way uh, to work. And as I am driving over here, I notice that there is a woman uh, whose car is broken down. She has a flat tire. And so it's a nice, cool uh, day. And so I, uh, I stop and uh, offer my assistance and uh, she's so grateful, opened the trunk and, and looked in there for the first time in human history. Everything you need to change a flat tire is right there. It doesn't have, uh, you know, groceries on top of it or, you know, coats or anything like that. Uh, so I, you know, get the spare out, make, make this change. And as I'm doing that, she says, what is it that would prompt you to do something like this for me who is a stranger? Uh, What's so different about you? Well, what an opportunity to share the gospel. So, you know, share the gospel with her. And she says, you know, this is the most wonderful thing that I have ever heard in my life. Can I become a Christian right now? And, uh, well, sure, yeah, you can do that. And so uh, we have a little worship service there, and she becomes a Christian, and we arrange for a baptism for her, and she's all excited and, and uh, make my way uh, to wherever I'm going next. And, uh, the staff decides, let's just go out and have lunch together. And so we, we do, and uh, the waitress comes, and uh, she overhears us talking and says, uh, uh, who, who are you people? I've, I've never come across people like you before. Uh, well, we're, we're Christians. And the waitress says, well, I've never met Christians like you before. I said, yeah, that's right. We, we, we know. We understand what you're saying. So uh, we, we live her a nice uh, you know, $200 tip because, you know, we're just generous. Uh, that's what it says here, you know, be generous. And, uh, you know, the day is just going uh, about as well as it could possibly go. And uh, you go home, grill steaks, and everybody loves steaks, and uh, it's just been a wonderful day. So go to bed and sleep soundly and deeply, and the next morning wake up about 9 o'clock. I forgot to set my alarm. It's not bright and sunny anymore. It's snowing in April late April, not in a real good mood. I'm on my way over to church to begin the day and I see another woman who is on the side of the road with a, a flat tire, uh, but you know, all the snow had melted and there were water, there was water in the puddles and I, I hit one of those puddles and uh, splashed water all over her. So, you know, not only did I not stop to help, I actually made things worse for her and, uh, and didn't dare look in the rearview mirror to see what her expressions uh, would be. And 
So I uh, get to the office and check email and see there where there are some anonymous notes uh, that have been sent in Christian love uh, to uh, tell me things that they think I need to know. And, uh, you know, none of that is good. Uh, the day is, is, is just awful. So, you know, go home and uh, nobody's in a good mood. Uh, supper hasn't been started. Uh, you know, we eat peanut butter crackers for, for supper, and uh, it's, it's been an awful day. Well, I'm glad to say that this is not entirely true, although elements in there, you know, certainly, uh, you know, are, are true. But, but here's what I want you to know, is that God loves me no more after the first day than he did after the second day. If God's acceptance of me is based upon my performance, I'm in trouble. I'm in big, big trouble. And here's what I want us all to know. God doesn't love you anymore after a strong, good performance than he does after a poor performance or one where everything just fell apart on you. Because his approval of you is not based upon your performance. It is based upon the performance of his son. See, Jesus Christ came to be our representative. And when he lived a perfect life, and it's important to realize that he lived a perfect life because he did that on our account. He performed absolutely perfectly on behalf of all of those who placed their faith and trust in him. And so when God looks to see, has this person performed well, well enough to be uh, given my stamp of approval? And God looks down, he doesn't see what you do or what you have done. He sees what Christ has done on your behalf. Here is a true story. I'll close with this. In my first ministry many, many years ago before most of you were born. That's how old I am. I can identify with Zechariah, you know. So I was about 22, maybe 23 years old. There was a man in the community, small community, um, who uh, wasn't part of a church, but he was on his deathbed. And so I was the only minister in town. So, you know, I got called. And so I go over and I talk to him and uh, ask him if he is uh, prepared uh, to, to meet God? Uh, is he sure that uh, he will uh, have eternal life uh, once this life is over? He assures me that he is ready. And so I say, so tell me about your relationship with Christ. He said, I don't know anything about Jesus Christ. And so what makes you so sure that God will accept you? What, would you? what are you going to say to him? He said, I'd say, just look at my record. Couldn't persuade him to think otherwise. You know, there are a lot of people who think that way. That approval of God, or approval from God is based upon how well you perform. And we like to think we perform well. 
because our good performance days somehow outnumber our bad performance days. This is why John came. To get people who think they don't need to repent, or repentance is for the really hardcore sinners out there. What repentance really is at its core, it's a change of mind. And the place where I believe the Spirit of God wants us to have that turning of our minds is in this area that we've been talking about right here. Are you still believing that you will not be found approved by God unless you perform well? Jesus has performed perfectly in your place. So stop thinking about the other way and, and begin to think that salvation is not performance-based. It's grace-based. It's what the message is for us. May it sink in and may it bear much fruit. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Father, for the blessed privilege of knowing you, grateful for your word, and grateful for those who have responded to the word and who have been obedient and who are feasting on your word. We pray that your word would take root in us and bear fruit, that it will be evident for all to see what a transformed life really looks like. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.